So we're at the line in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and uh, Lauren's going to be taking the lion's share of this. This is uh, something of, I could say, an area of expertise, right? I mean, if you could say that about the Holy Spirit, um, at least you know a lot about this. You just yeah. recently taught a grad section on this, right? A weekend in intensive? Okay, well, you are more qualified, way more qualified than I am. Um, so I'll just give a, a little... Um, overview of some biblical stuff, and then I'll hand it over to Lauren. So when we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, obviously that does not mean that I totally understand the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it's common, quite common for Christians to see the Holy Spirit as maybe the most mysterious or kind of hard to, hard to understand. That seems to be a common thing. Um, one of the things uh, in Scripture, even, as you read about the Spirit, you'll notice the Spirit is described in ways that sound both personal and uh, maybe impersonal is the right word. So personal, you see the Holy Spirit, for instance, bearing witness. The Spirit teaches. The Spirit speaks. The Spirit testifies, makes known, decides, and leads. The kind of things you would think uh, that are uh, accurately describe what a person, not person as in flesh and blood, but person, someone with agency, does. But then sometimes the Spirit has this kind of impersonal. It's the, the love, um, the first fruits, a seal, a pledge. Um, and so we're reminded again as we think about the nature of God, or in this case the nature of the Spirit, that it's not going to fit into uh, our boxes um, precisely well. Uh, so Christians think of the Holy Spirit as the third person uh, of the Trinity, or as a third person of the Trinity. Um, so we've looked at Trinitarian ideas. One, God is one being, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The divinity and kind of distinctive personhood of the Spirit uh, is implied in the New Testament. So New Testament nowhere says Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is more uh, like uh, what happened when the early church got together and said, how do we, how do we put language around what, what is implied in Scripture? So you get those passages like Jesus saying, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it seems like, okay, there's three persons, and yet... Um, they all have this kind of uh, divine status. Or Paul can bless the church. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So it's, it's these kinds of things uh, throughout Scripture that the, the church later came to, as they kind of worked it out, uh, where they came to Trinitarian language. So a Trinita the Trinity language is not like a, an imposition on Scripture. It's more a kind of teasing out what are the implications of scripture. So for instance, the Nicene Creed, the kind of finalized version you get in 381, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who together with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. So as we study the Spirit, we get a picture of a God who is near, not this distant God, a hands-off God, but a God who is near. We might think, if I were to highlight three things about the Spirit, from Scripture, we can see the Spirit as the loving, empowering, and uniting presence of God. So the Spirit is the loving presence of God. Uh, so Paul can say, I believe it's in Romans, um, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The loving presence of God. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The empowering presence of God. Uh, throughout Scripture, uh, particularly the New Testament, you see... Uh, the Spirit empowering people to witness, uh, to resist sin, to do miracles, and to be gifted in various kinds of service. 
And the Spirit is also the uniting presence of God. Unites us with God, unites us with Christ. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, which allows us to call God Abba, Father. Uh, so this is just a little preview of, of the Spirit as the loving, empowering, and uniting presence of God. Um, C.S. Lewis, well, not just C.S. Lewis, but lots of people have thought about the, the Spirit as the love um, that kind of binds Father and Son. So, um, in, in the New Testament, you'll get language where the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father, and also the Spirit of the Son. And uh, this has led some to maybe say, well, how is he both the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son? Well, maybe he's something like the loving bond that unites them. If you remember, I said at the beginning, the Spirit seems both personal and impersonal. So the Spirit is a person, and yet the Spirit is this loving bond. And so here's how C.S. Lewis describes this. This, by the way, is perhaps the most significant difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing. Not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, almost, a kind of drama. The union between the Father and the Son is such a living, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. So perhaps more than any other worldview, Christianity places loving relationship at the center of reality. Dynamic, unifying love characterizes the ultimate reality, the triune three persons and one God. So what this implies then for Christians as well, uh, and this plays out throughout all of Scripture, is that if we are to bear the image of God, and if God is communal, then we bear the image of God best when we do so in community. Uh, scripture seems to know almost nothing of a kind of individualized, um, away from community relationship with God. Yes, we can have personal relationships with God that are kind of individual, but um, a, a religion, a Christian kind of practice that has no community is not a biblical idea. Uh, it's always expected that we are in loving community because our God exists in loving community. Adam, it's not right for man to be alone. God calls the people of Israel. God calls the church. Uh, and the expectation at the end of the ages is the nations coming together. Um, so communal, uh, united love is at the heart of reality, and it's how we also bear the image of God. All right? No one can correct all this. <laughs> well, this isn't a correction, but it's just an addition. Um, another passage that's really important that I thought our New Testament scholar would surely mention. <laughs> John 14, uh, verses 15 onward, but really uh, 15 through 17. Uh, Jesus is, is talking to his uh, apostles, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. So that is one of the most distinctive passages in Scripture that show us that we have to wrestle with the Spirit as a personal being rather than just a force. Um, that This is an advocate. This is someone who does some sort of action. And, and Christ uses a personalized pronoun for the Spirit. Um, you know him. You receive him. Okay, so 
In the wake of the New Testament, in the early, uh, the first couple centuries of Christianity, um, the spirit, the doctrine of the spirit was kind of neglected because there was so much emphasis placed on Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, specifically, is Jesus the same as the Logos, and how are we going to work that out, and defending that idea. So, so much attention was committed to that that really most Christians just kind of had this idea that the Spirit is a distinct divine person, is a member of the Godhead, whatever we mean by that, and um, the Spirit is involved in the work of salvation. So they were still appealing to the Spirit in confessions before baptism, for example, and they understood themselves as praying through the Spirit, but they hadn't worked out really systematically a doctrine of the Spirit. That didn't become urgent until... Uh, the 4th century, really, late 4th century. There was a church father in Greece named Basil of Caesarea. He's also known as Basil the Great. Um, He wrote a really important text called On the Holy Spirit. And it's the first extensive look at this teaching in uh, 375. Uh, And he argues here that the Spirit must be divine because uh, he is responsible for the work of salvation and that he must be co-eternal with the Father and Son, and that the Spirit must be, if the Spirit is co-eternal, then the Spirit must somehow emerge from the Father, as does the Son. And so he re- Basil really works this out systematically and becomes really influential in that addition to the creed that Josh read. Um, so in the Apostles' Creed, all we have is, I believe in the Spirit, By the time you get to the Nicene Creed, specifically its version that was kind of hammered out by 381, you have all that additional language. I believe in the Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. You hear that? That's important. Uh, With the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. In other words, this being is, is worthy of our worship, is divine. And who spoke through the prophets, you hear there a connection with the Old Testament Spirit of God. So now the Spirit of God that filled the prophets has now been revealed as a member of the Godhead. So that's really the distinction. A lot of times my students want to know, is the Spirit in the Old Testament the same as the Spirit in the New Testament? And that's kind of a yes, uh, sure, but uh, God wasn't revealed until the Incarnation as having this Trinitarian life. So it's it's not that we can't say that it's the same spirit, it's that um, revelation took a different shape after, after Christ came. So we think of the spirit differently um, in New Testament terms. Okay, so a few. I'm going to unpack some of those terms. Um, first of all, what the divinity of the spirit is affirming for us is that um, if God is triune, if God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that means that God is at work both... Uh, beyond us, kind of above us as Father, as the source of all things, as the source of divine love. God is also at work. Um, yeah. Even uh, what was the feeling about Genesis 1 that let us, you know, the not, yeah. much, not much is revealed, but it, it seems to indicate more than one. Let us make man to be like us. As far as I understand, that's kind of an ambiguous verse, right? It's like a heavenly host. Yeah, so it's it's hard to know what it meant or yeah. what they would have, how they would have heard that. But 
kind of later, so Richard Hayes has this great line, reading backwards. Yeah. So in light of Christ and what he's revealed, you read backwards and think, oh, oh, yeah. oh, I can see how that's, that was pointing to something. They didn't have the benefit at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, that's, mm -hmm. so that allows us to read Genesis 1 in a way that might be richer yeah. than they would have known. Yeah, thank you. And I'm glad you feel confident interrupting and asking questions. It's <laughs> <laughs> important. It's important. One thing I have never laughed. Confidence. Confidence. <laughs> well, I'm glad because I want you to. Because this stuff could get kind of, you know, I don't, it could get away from you. The questions can get away. So I'm glad I would invite everyone to be as confident as Hilton is. Um, so the, the God is at work above us, beyond us. God is also at work for us, beside us, as the sun. And God is also at work within us in a way that is not, like Josh said, this is where this, the, you can see how the language of the Spirit gets kind of <coughs> muddled because the Spirit is so close to us that it, you, know, you can feel as if it's something like a power rather than um, a, a personal... <laughs> presence that is evoking something and yet there are these distinct experiences in scripture where for instance in Romans 8 where Paul is describing the experience of prayer as one wherein the spirit is activating something inside you and I think for those of us who have had that experience we kind of know what Paul's talking about there there's a sense in which um, when I pray in a way that feels like I'm kind of communing <laughs> with God fully that, there, that prayer is being activated within me in a way that's not quite reducible to me and that's not quite reducible just to the one to whom I pray. So there's this kind of joining in the life of God that's happening in the very act of prayer. So that's a pretty remarkable thing. Okay, so um, a few points that we can kind of hold on to in trying to figure out who is this spirit because one of the key things that Christians have had to discern is how do we distinguish the Spirit of God from the other spirits in the world, the other spirits that are at work? Um, and so that means, that can mean whatever you think it could mean, but I think for us, uh, specifically that would mean, how do we know that it's actually the Spirit of God that is prompting us to do something rather than just our own desires or um, some false idea that's been given to us externally? Or if we allow for something like other spiritual presence in, in the world, um, I think that's a real possibility as well. Okay, so a few things that we can always look to. Um, first of all, we can always look to Scripture. Scripture always should be our norm. And Josh has already highlighted some of these resources for us. In the Old Testament, we find the Spirit of God uh, visiting God's chosen servants, appointing and empowering them to further God's purposes. We also find you can back up and see the Spirit of God is the one that hovers over the waters and that creates order out of chaos. So uh, God's Spirit, the Spirit of um, the one that fills Christ, that fills the church, is also the Spirit that is at work in the cosmos, bringing life out of chaos, moving the entire creation towards its goal. So that's one thing to hold in mind. The Spirit is at work in the world beyond the church. That's pretty important for us to remember. Um, but it's always moving towards a shape that we believe has been disclosed most fully in Christ, in the will, the will of God that has been disclosed in Christ. So we don't have to guess at what the Spirit is working towards. We've been, we've been given a clear picture of that. In the New Testament, the Spirit is revealed as personal, uh, a member of the Godhead. 
And uh, we can always remember that the Spirit, you know, I've already said this, but the Spirit is always moving toward, moving things towards the shape that Christ's own life takes. So when we're trying to test the Spirit, we should always think about Christ. How does, how does this play out in Christ's own life if we're expecting something to play out in our lives? Um, so in other words, um, and this is getting a little bit ahead, but when we're thinking about the possibility of miraculous gifts, one thing I get a little concerned about is not that um, we could expect that the Spirit could still somehow work through us in miraculous ways. I more get concerned that we expect healing every time or we expect some sort of miraculous occurrence every time when, in fact, um, Christ and the apostles had to bear their crosses. So we should expect that the Spirit should, would fill us and empower us to face our crosses with the expectation of resurrection on the other side of death. So it's not that healing can't happen. Healing happened plenty in the New Testament. But this is also, there's this strong thread that we could also neglect if we're not careful, which is that uh, the Spirit of God, is, it fills us to face death well. Um, so we can come back to that. But That kind of ties into the Spirit is working throughout Jesus and his ministry. So if you read Luke, the Spirit is constantly at work in the life of Jesus. But it's not leading him to live his best life now. You know, instead, it's leading him uh, to this servanthood and humility. And he is bringing restoration, but, but um, it's not just about kind of personal... Personal fulfillment. Yeah. He's the one who led him to temptation. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Together. The Spirit led him yeah, so to be tempted. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's shaping and... Um, directing, but towards, yeah, a particular end. Yeah, and it, and, and Lauren's point's a good one because it's often a refinement um, through hardship. So yeah, I, I want us to, to talk about that some more if we have time. So, Lauren, can I ask you a question? So, the first readers of Luke, the first readers of John, and they were reading spirits. Did they? I don't know. So we know what went on later. People tried to explain that. Was the Hebrew, the teaching of the rabbis, enough about the spirits that they could make that connection with God, or were they would just kind of said, "Oh yeah, okay, we'll get back to that," or was it something that they understood because of the language, because of the history that they had when this talking of the spirit and stuff like that, they were able to make a connection mm-hmm. with God, or was it just kind of a thing that said, "I'm." Not sure what it's saying, but it, it's important. But are you talking about it? That what the apostles would have thought, or are you talking about what the I'm early the Christians? First people who read this, so I'm not saying an apostle who walked with Jesus, but somebody who was reading John's gospel right after it had been released, yeah. reading it for the first time. Well, we have early documents where, um, for example, some of our earliest church fathers who were sort of like grandchildren of the apostles. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, were we're clinging to the teaching of the Spirit filling the church and filling the believer for God's work in the world because they said this is handed down by the apostles. This is central to the apostles' teaching. It's simply that they weren't, they weren't putting as much energy towards developing the doctrine because the doctrine of the person of Christ was just taking up the attention. It was the one that was kind of uh, on the debate stage. So is that a model we should follow? Um. I think that is, well, I mean, in terms of how much attention we should give the Spirit, and I think we, we can only gain by giving the doctrine of the Spirit attention. I'm not saying we but, shouldn't, but the, the doctrine of 
Christ becomes paramount, and that for, evidently that was enough, right? Right. Well, um, or you could argue that it wasn't quite enough. Because, yeah, because they had to come along and, and do this work as well. Right. So um, I do think the doctrine of Christ remains central in terms of identifying the Spirit. And in that regard, you, you kind of have to start with Christ because Christ, the Spirit could become too much like this nebulous idea. And so you always understand who the Spirit of God is by the concrete form that the Spirit of God produces. So... Um, you see, that's this other kind of beautiful image we have in Scripture is that the Spirit comes to rest on bodies, on the body of Christ, literally in the form of a dove. Um, and the Spirit is always taking us through concrete means of grace. So this, the waters of baptism, the communion meal, uh, gathering together, serving the poor. There are always these embodied ways in which we kind of link up with the Spirit. So is there another comment here? John 20, 30, 31, the Spirit dwelt in Jesus. He did these miracles, some of which are recorded, to produce faith. It mm -hmm. dealt bear witness to Jesus. Yeah, so, and, that's right. And, 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 with, and with us wrestling with it in our, in our own life uh, gives us access to Jesus in ways we might not without, without trying to grapple with it. That's right. So Hilton's point is important that um, another kind of piece to this picture that we're weaving. And you can see that when you're trying to get a sense of who the Spirit is, it's it's not so much a kind of systematic doctrine, perhaps, as, as we might have when we're figuring out who Christ is as the Word made flesh. It's more like a, a tapestry you're weaving together where you get a whole picture. But something that, that's important that Hilton just mentioned is that the Spirit's purpose is always to activate within us the sort of attention to Christ um, or to, and that itself is, I'm getting a little ahead of my notes, but that itself is a really important piece of what the Spirit is doing. Um, it, it helps us attend to Christ, it helps us commune with Christ, and it forms us in the likeness of Christ. So all of that is happening in what the Spirit's doing. But a lot of theologians have said the reason the doctrine of the Spirit is harder and more nebulous is because the Spirit doesn't call attention to itself. It calls attention to Christ. So the Spirit's doing its work when you're not thinking about the fact that the Spirit's at work. Does that make sense? Um, which is another reason why I think we have the wrong idea, maybe, if we think that this is going to be about um, supernatural expressions only or something. It's, uh, you know, it's about, I think the best charismatic people I know have this central idea that this is about um, being formed in the likeness of Christ, being willing to, to bear my cross. So... So, uh, let's see, where to pick up? Um, Jesus is both, this is an important piece too, Jesus is both the recipient and the giver of the Spirit in the New Testament. Um, the Spirit is, you know, at the inauguration of Christ's ministry, we, we see his baptism scene where the Father speaks, the Spirit descends, and the Son receives. And uh, that's one of the scenes that early Christians return to is working in working out the Trinitarian doctrine and in discerning who the Spirit actually is. And then because of the work Jesus does, um, he enables the pouring out of the same Spirit upon all of us. So now it's the pouring out of the Spirit that is, it's our foretaste of the future reign of God, wherein we will all be in perfect harmony with each other and God in the, in the creation. So uh, the Spirit is something like the first fruits 
of the coming, the arriving reign of God. That's also New Testament language. Okay, so the Spirit, let's see, we've already talked about how the Spirit transforms us um, by grace means, such as baptism, Lord's Supper, prayer and worship, dwelling in the Word, service to the poor, enabling us to join in the life of the Son in that regard. It also liberates us for a pattern of life that reflects Christ's own life. Um, so think about the, the scene in Luke 4.18 where um, Christ reads the uh, proclamation before the people, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. That's the same work that the Spirit is enabling in us. So again, if we're curious, what's the Spirit up to? What is the Spirit empowering us to do? We can go back to that passage. That's what the Spirit is enabling in us. And I've already mentioned how it is the first fruits of God's inbreaking reign. Um, and it also gives us gifts for life together. So uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that the most important gifts are that the, the Spirit gives us are the gifts of faith, hope, and love. And so when we're testing the Spirit, um, when we're testing the gifts of the Spirit, we should see whether or not they are actually in service of the betterment of the community, uh, rather than just about my own kind of self-fulfillment, like Josh mentioned earlier. Anything you want to add at this point? Just kind of... Uh, I, I'm learning a lot. Um, I think just that the church continued, I mean, even early on the church was wrestling with this, so Paul's got to get on to the Corinthians. The problem is not that they're charismatic expressions. The problem is that they are using the gifts of the Spirit in a way to kind of build up their own standing in the church. And he's like, no. So he talks about gifts in chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, and then sandwiched in between that is that beautiful chapter about love. The point of that is, is this is what the gifts are supposed to be about, or in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. And you guys might know this song, Love, Joy, Peace, Patience. This is what the Spirit is, is kind of, doing within us primarily and all these gifts and other things are, are should be characterized uh, in such a way mm -hmm. but yeah they're struggling with it we're struggling with it because sometimes uh, we have a tendency to to use a gift for our own standing grouping yeah happening? <laughs> all right not yet yeah, no, but i don't want to stop yeah, David, yeah. oh okay is the when jesus says i have to go so that the spirit can come. Mm -hmm. Is that a sign of limited power? <clears throat> on Christ's part? On Christ's part? Or is it a, uh, a magnification of power? So that, you know, I'm just one man, but I'm giving you the spirit which can have it have it there. You know, as far as I understand, and I'd be curious what Josh would say too, um, that is in some sense, an acknowledgement of something like wait, the latter statement you made. But there's also an, an important piece there in acknowledging what's happening with the ascension. So as we've, we've kind of returned to this some in this class, so this will be familiar, but um, when Christ ascends, literally what's happening there is humanity, the full completion of the Christ event has happened. Now humanity itself can be fully known by God. That's kind of what's occurred. And in that moment, when Christ ascends, what we see is this literal kind of joining of humanity within the life of God. 
and that is what enables the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh. So I think there's also that sort of transaction is, is being acknowledged. Like um, Christ is saying, I have to complete this by ascent, in the ascension. In the, um, now, in order for this to become universal, and what's happening is Christ is um, set above all other powers and principalities. So there's this kind of simultaneous uh, dynamic kind of thing happening there. Is there anything you'd add? I think that was, it, it's, as well said, it's just complex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're just kind of getting a, a hazy sense of what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that's as, mm-hmm. as close as we can get to understanding. Yeah. Somehow God is all-powerful, and yet for him to do certain things like be in relationships of love to us, he's got to give us free will. He can't just make us love him. And to be united with humanity in a particular way, it's not just just decides it, but he goes to this incarnation and, and resurrection and ascension. Um, yeah. I don't know yeah. how much I, I'm going to get into just a realm of my own ignorance if I keep going beyond that. <laughs> uh, okay, so a couple more points and then we can stop for more discussion. Um, can, can I interrupt? Sure. Do you realize how disheartening that is when you talk about your <laughs> what is that? Oh, well, a lot of stuff I am. Yeah. Well, save, Thank you. save it for somebody. Figure that Yeah, our students don't care. If we, yeah. Could we say that? Uh, okay, so in order to, I, I would say. One thing that we have to bear in mind is that the fruits of the Spirit are a gift, but they also must be cultivated. And in his work on the Spirit, uh, Basil of Caesarea notes something like this. Uh, This is a quote from him. He says, All who are in need of sanctification turn to the Spirit. All those seek Him who live by virtue. For his breath refreshes them and comes to their aid in the pursuit of their natural and proper end. So what you hear there is this acknowledgement that we are in need of sanctification. We turn to the Spirit for that. And yet, there's this way of seeking the Spirit, of opening ourselves to the Spirit. And we do that by living virtuously. So there's that kind of tension that we are called into um, a life that we, we have to open ourselves to God. This goes back to even what Josh was saying a moment ago about um, our free will, perhaps, our, the, that God invites us into something that we have to say yes or no to. In saying yes to that, we open ourselves to the Spirit's influence by living a certain way. So there's some effort involved here as well. We shouldn't wait for the Spirit to visit us and take hold of us and control us like, like a puppet, like a puppeteer, I should say. Philippians 2, I think 12 and 13. Work out your salvation, for it's God who is working in you. Mm-hmm. It just captures that partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's an um, American philosopher and spiritual disciplines teacher named Dallas Willard, some of you may be familiar with. Um, he had the idea of what he called the golden triangle of spiritual growth. And the idea is that the Spirit's action within us um, is interacting with the ordinary events and trials of life and intentional spiritual disciplines. And all of these things are interacting over time to produce in us um, people who live in the likeness of Christ. 
So uh, th there's all of this is, is going on at, at the same time, and, and we can add that the church and its worship ought to be the central place where this kind of formation is occurring. So uh, I have other stuff I could get to, but I do want us to have time for a question or two. Is there anything that, that you would like to discuss out of everything that's been raised? I'm, st I'm still curious how the rabbis uh, view the spirit, because mm -hmm. the spirit is uh, replete in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. all through. I just don't know how they saw it. I, I'm not sure either. Um, they just saw it as an expression of God. That's my sense. They're very strictly monotheist. Um, but it's just, sure. it's just a, like when David was anointed, the Spirit of God fell on you know, How did they view that? And, and why did they not want that? Why was that not God? Mm. I understand. Yeah, I, I don't understand that way either. I think there was a sense, and there was a, a limited kind of. Um, I mean, you see that through the Old Testament. There's a, a limitation on how much the Spirit indwells. It's not everybody. It's particularly focused in the temple. It, the, the occasional prophet or king or somebody will, will be indwelt by the Spirit. But, but it is though that's like little foreshadowing, so little glimpses of Joel 2 when the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on you know, sons and daughters for prophesy. I don't know how they, how they work that out, though. That's just not an area I my, my guess on that is that they just saw the Spirit of God as uh, the presence. So um, you know, I think most times when it's talking about the Spirit of God, I think it refers to the Ruach, which yeah. is just the breath of God. And so if you think of the breath of God falling on David or the breath of God uh, indwelling the, the priests, I, I think they would understand that to mean the very presence of God was, was here and on that person, but, but that's, that's speculation. You know, they obviously did, they were okay with, you know, being monotheistic, but understanding that Elohim was plural, and as Hilton said, you've got the, the plural references that refer to God. So, so somewhere, you know, they, they did have to wrestle with that and work that out, but I, I think uh, most of the spirit references, they would have taken to the, the breath or presence of God. That's almost the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, right there, the, talking about the Spirit. Nicodemus didn't understand it, and Jesus is mm -hmm. saying, yeah. you're a teacher of Come on. No. So many times when I read those, I'm like, I don't understand. I wouldn't have gotten this either. You know? <laughs> Give a break, Jesus. You know? <laughs> Give a break, complex stuff. Let me, let me read the white paper. Right? <laughs> Any other questions? The thing that you wrestle with, Obviously, the apostles who had special gifts, miraculous, they went about and did signs and wonders to create attention to their message. But yet, like personally, all had to wrestle with their own spirituality, mm -hmm. their own faith, mm -hmm. and the personification of that, of course, is Peter. But even Paul said, I've got a bucket in my body, struggle against all my weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a dichotomy. Theoretically, have the strength in us if we call upon will help us. Mm -hmm. yet every, you know, why am I not stronger mm -hmm. today than I was yesterday? Mm -hmm. Why can't I give up the, 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 you know, the sin and the weaknesses in my life that, that plague me to seem like day after day? Uh, yeah. Is that I like the Dallas War the illustration that if you'll hang in there, and maybe even if you fail, God's mm -hmm. promise to save us. 
It's yeah. the struggle that, that he's looking for. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's clear in Scripture that we can expect to be refined through our struggles in some sense. Now, that gets tricky when we start trying to work out a doctrine of why are bad things happening to good people. But I think we can, when we frame it the way you just did, which is that, you know, these kind of ongoing, kind of the thorn in my flesh, why can't I get over this or get past this or what's going on with this, that we can see that this could be the very site where God's glory will be shown in us the most greatly. Yeah. I think of how I've taught my kids to ride a bike. Like when you're first a Christian, many of you probably experienced that like you're on fire and virtue is easy and you know, sin you can just resist, no problem. And then after a couple <laughs> of years, like, oh, am, I, am I like going backwards or something? Why is it so much harder? Why does God feel more distant? And I think when I'm teaching my daughter to ride a bike, you know, I'm holding her shirt and, and so I'm very present, I'm very near her. She's not stumbling, she's not falling. But I want her to learn to ride a bike. And so as I'm trying to grow her, I slowly let go. And so she might not feel me quite as present, uh, and she might not feel me quite as near, and she might stumble and wobble more. But in fact, she's growing in ways that if I were super present and super holy, she would just stay kind of this immature stage. And so for those of us who find ourselves struggling more, and we feel like we're wobbling more, uh, or that God is a little distant, it may be that that's primarily how he's growing us, is by backing by seeming to back off some, not because he's more distant, but because he knows it's time for us to, you know, kind of take the bars and pedal ourselves and maybe even fall. Um, that happens till the day you die. Yeah. I, I believe it. I thought that I would be better than I am uh, at this point, but kids are refining me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna. I was just gonna say on that comment that uh, Ignatius's of Loyola's work on discerning spirits talks a lot about that dichotomy between God is far and near and kind of interpreting you know, yeah. what that may or may not be. Yeah. yeah. John the Cross, his Dark Night of the Soul. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's when you feel like God is so distant. It could be that <laughs> that long stretch of Him growing you to be faithful and to lean on Him even when it doesn't have that kind of sweetness mm-hmm. to it. So my question is, often I find when we have discussions around the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like talking about, like when I talk about the natural predators, I, there was a comment the other day, they said, you know, the other team is paid too to play. Mm-hmm. And so we'll talk about the Spirit in isolation against other powers or principalities. Mm-hmm. And so would you comment on that time of the Apostles' Creed, kind of what the view of the other powers or principalities would have been in that space. Well, again, Josh probably knows more about in the that. New Testament era, I don't know. Yeah, Apostles' Creed. Yeah, I don't know how they would have worked that out. Of I, I think, church. generally speaking, it probably would have been similar to New Testament perspectives. I mean, they they saw the world as inhabited by spirits, right? That there are there are spiritual forces at work, both good and bad. Um, at various levels. What we have in the New Testament is this assertion that Christ has been set above all of these things, all of the, all powers and principalities, so um, creaturely and inanimate, right? And so they see the Spirit of God as being the one that empowers us to resist those spirits. So yeah, but there's always this, pre- this, this drive to discern the Spirit of God as opposed to another spirit that could be disguising itself. Um, I would leave us with, before we close in saying the creed, I would just want to emphasize that the spirit that 
that empowers us is always forming us for a certain kind of action. It's always forming us through certain sorts of means. So we want to open ourselves to the work of this Spirit. We look to the life of Christ. We try to live that way. We commune with one another. We receive the sacraments. We serve the poor. We, I think we, we so often make the Spirit abstract. The Spirit is not abstract. The Spirit takes a form. It always, and other spirits do too, to go back to that question. So we, if we want to be filled with the Spirit of God, we have to take the form that God takes, which is that of Christ. Next week we'll talk some about um, discerning the Spirit, as I believe, as we get into Montanism. Um, so I think this discussion is not over. Um, I know you guys are on edge about Montanism. And, uh, but it's how we, how we uh, continue to discern the Spirit. So that, that discernment question is going to keep going. Uh, but let's, let's say the creed together and then we'll be done. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I begin to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. See you all next Sunday.